when you get to see your colleague teach the same content that you have been planning together and see their special moves that they make, just watching a teacher just be excited about what they're seeing someone else do. What are their quick grabs that they can take away and think about, well, how might that work in my classroom context? Because we know each classroom context, right? It's its own little community. This is High Tech High Unboxed. I'm Alec Patton, and that's the voice of Michelle Bowman, Vice President of Networks and Continuous Improvement at Learning Forward. Stacey Callier spoke to Michelle and her colleague, Elizabeth Foster, about what they've learned about adult learning in schools, and particularly about continuous improvement. I'll let Stacey take it from here. Michelle Bowman and Elizabeth Foster, I am so excited to talk with you. Michelle, you are a Vice President of Networks and Continuous Improvement at Learning Forward, an organization whose mission is to build the capacity of leaders to design and sustain meaningful professional learning in schools and districts across the country. And Elizabeth, you're the Vice President of Research and Standards at Learning Forward. You both coach and facilitate networks using continuous improvement to shift outcomes for students with a particular focus on math, literacy, and systems for adult learning. And you've both thought a lot about what adult learning could and should look like in schools if we want to better serve the students our systems have traditionally failed. So thank you so much for being here and sharing your learning with us today. Of course. Thanks for having us. All right, well, so before we jump in, can you each share with us just your identity markers and how they influence how you show up in the world and in your work? And Michelle, if you wouldn't mind starting us off. So I'm a black female and the work that I do in life and professionally is really rooted in my Christian faith. Um, I'm really pleased and proud uh, to be a first-generation doctoral graduate. I just finished my doctorate in December of 2021. Um, and, oh, right? Yeah, it feels so good. It is. And I was studying uh, networks and how they really shape professional learning efficacy among school district leaders. Um, so I've been doing this work around networks really for about the past seven years when I came to Learning Forward. And you know, one of the things that I know I've learned about myself, especially these last seven years, is I really am about purposefully connecting with others, especially in communities. And I love to facilitate and I'm just going to not be humble. I'm good at it. <laughs> the reason I think I'm good at it is because I just want, I want to learn. I want others to learn. I want them to grow. And I really just want to see folks flourish. So it's great to hear folks talk about themselves and just celebrate everybody's contribution to the work that we're doing. Them. Thank you. All right, Elizabeth. Hi, thanks so much for having us here today. I am a Massachusetts girl born and bred. I currently live in Washington, D.C., but my heart is really secretly on the beach up there somewhere in New England. I am a mom to two wonderful daughters, teenage daughters, one in college and one in high school. They are strong and interesting and fabulous, and they keep me busy, and they keep me entertained at the same time. I've been working in education for about 25 years, doing all kinds of different things, really, from classroom teaching to research about teaching to policy work about teacher recruitment and retention and professional learning. 
I like the combination of research and policy and professional learning with folks in schools and classrooms. I think it just is a nice balance and a nice way to stay involved on a lot of different levels. My work at Learning Forward is focused on how professional learning can improve outcomes for educators and, of course, ultimately for students, for all students. You know, I started my teaching working as a paraprofessional, uh, working with kids with emotional and behavioral challenges and helping them make the transition from a residential facility to a general education classroom. And I, I learned so much about how important it is to see kids as individuals and help teachers understand how to get to know those kids and build relationships. So that's kind of a touchstone for me throughout everything I do. Okay, so you both have been supporting adult learning in schools for a long time, and you were both educators yourselves. What do you think powerful adult learning that's in service of students looks and feels like? I think it looks like educators sitting around a table, asking questions, sharing documents, looking things up together, talking about their students, talking about their own history, um, both as younger students and adult students, and then what it looks like in their own classrooms and sort of comparing, contrasting, making progress together. So I think about powerful adult learning like a well uh, rehearsed orchestra. I was in the orchestra in junior high and in high school, violin and viola player, right? So the conductor is there and they have their specific job to do. And part of what that conductor does is as you're rehearsing, right, each musician has their part to play. We need the oboe to sound right. We need the violins to be in tune. We need the percussion section to keep the right time. And so the conductor provides like the differentiated support right, that each of those instrumentalists needs, but they're also moving everyone in the same direction, right, toward the end, which is the performance. Because if things are out of tune or, you know, mistimed, or maybe an instrument just doesn't even come in when it's their turn, then the piece as it's performed is less than excellent, right? And then the audience doesn't enjoy the performance. And not that teaching is a performance, but it is something that is seen and observed and experienced. Uh, so then to me, adult learning, right, if it's powerful in the same way as we're moving toward excellence and equity in the teaching and in the learning. So I hope that that metaphor fits in this in this space. I like it. As a former English major, I'm a big fan of metaphors. So can you guys give us an example of like powerful adult learning from your work just to get us grounded in a particular example? Yeah, so I think about um, a network that actually I'm still a part of here in Texas, working specifically with a couple of school districts and their middle school campuses and their teachers and, and school leaders. And so another colleague and I were, were trying to help the network members really get a clear picture of the full spectrum of the continuous improvement process. And so we created a simulation. Um, we were just thinking about what's a great learning design wherein um, the, the adults, right, are experiencing themselves, the very um, actions that they are then going to be responsible for implementing, right? And so writing that simulation and then facilitating it with their group, we really were able to get them engaged in the process from a participant learner perspective, right? They put on the student hat, the teachers need to do some math 
And we said, yes, all of them. And we wanted them to try to put themselves in the space of an eighth grader and working through the math problem. And the math problem was around rates of change. Um, And so they worked through the scenario of the math problem. And it was interesting to hear some conversations, um, not so much of the math classroom teachers who are in the network, but the administrators from their campuses um, who are not as often, right, um, working through math problems. And to see them and hear them um, even just struggle a little bit with uh, looking at a graph and describing the race and using the data points that were there to talk about what the graph represented um, in terms of student rate in a race and how long it took a student to finish a race um, really provided, I think, an opportunity for particularly those administrators to feel some of the weight of the kinds of math instruction conversation that is expected to be going on in the classroom when the teachers are using rich tasks. I do remember one person who was actually one of the people who is uh, supported the data analysis in our network. And she pulled me aside and she said, Michelle, I just want you to know that I've always had some anxiety um, about algebra. And I said, okay. I said, just put your student hat on, right? We're here um, in our facilitation mode as the teachers in the classroom to help you think through. And it was so much fun to watch her get excited about engaging in math content in order to help her better understand the student experience in the classroom. um, And then how that student experience both the feeling and the knowledge and skills and and content output translates into the dialogue that educators have about their instructional practices as it pertains to uh, their testing cycle. Once the, the teams worked through the math problem, then they used a protocol to analyze the student work. And so again, we reminded them that this would be the practice, right, of them as teachers. And so they worked through what's called a three-stack protocol. The teachers working as a collaborative team stacked the student work into those that most of the criteria to meet the content standard was evident, the criteria was not evident, or the criteria, all of it was clearly evident. And after that, then they would have some discussion about what they understood uh, about the students, their knowledge and skills, understanding areas that might need some additional attention or support. And so it was really powerful and beneficial for those adults to be steeped in the process, but using both perspectives. So that was a pretty powerful learning design that we were able to use. I love that. I love how um, Rob Reardon, one of the founders of High Tech High, and I have written about this need for symmetry in learning that if we want to create amazing learning experiences for students, we need to create those same kind of experiences for adults so that they can experience them themselves as learners. And so I just love, that's such a beautiful example of that kind of symmetry that we're hoping to create. Elizabeth, is there anything that you want to add or, or another example that comes up for you when you think powerful? One of the things that Michelle just said really sparked my thinking because 
Looking at student work and using us looking at student work protocol can be so powerful for adults because that process of sort of assembling your student artifacts and then mapping what you're seeing in the student work to what your expectations are for your own instruction or for your team's instruction. And then kind of just talking through with your colleagues about what your assumptions are, what your expectations are, where there might be sort of patterns of misconceptions in student work that might reflect your own misconceptions in your in your instruction. The other thing I was just thinking about when Michelle was talking is the the adult learning that happens when colleagues with different content expertise sit together and talk about sort of some key conceptual ideas that might not be transferring uh, in student understanding. And so I'm thinking about a team we worked with a couple of years ago where we had STEM teachers with different areas of expertise sit together and talk about how they were addressing a particular concept. And after a couple of hours of conversation, they realized that no one was in fact grounding students in the sort of basic understanding of this concept. And they were all kind of talking around it. I also just want to put like a little exclamation point on what you both were talking about in relation to student work, because I think student work is such a rich source of data for anybody involved in continuous improvement in schools. And it's often one that folks don't necessarily think of as data because we tend to think of data as like these big things that are outside of the classroom or things that we're collecting in addition to our practice. But student work is such a powerful source of data for folks working on instruction. Um, So I love, I love that looking at student work protocol and I love that you all double down on that. Yeah, it really is. Can I add one more thing, Stacey, that um, bouncing off of what Elizabeth said, she was talking about peers being together and not necessarily recognizing what the others are doing. I couldn't help but think of peer observation conversations, right? So in one of the districts that I had previously worked in, it was so much fun for me to walk with a teacher right, to see their colleagues teach. And they had done a fabulous job consistently of being in their professional learning communities and talking about how are they, they were gonna facilitate, right, instruction. But when, a net, when you get to see your colleague teach the same content that you have been planning together and see their special moves that they make, just watching a teacher just be excited about what they're seeing someone else do, What are their quick grabs that they can take away and think about, well, how might that work in my classroom context? And so educators thinking about how to tweak their own instruction by observing what their peers are doing. And also then the surprise of, well, wait, doesn't everybody do what I do, you know, when I'm inside of my learning space? And the answer is no. Um, You know, I had those own realizations myself, even with adults as facilitators. So I'm saying a lot of things, but just peer observations, whether it's teachers watching teachers, leaders observing other leaders, right? Leading in their school context, leading in their adult learning context. There's so much power, right? When you co-facilitate what you pick up from others who are leading from the front of the room while you're supporting from the side and from the back. So again, just other ways that that 
collaboration and powerful adult learning happens when we we observe each other and then have you know dialogue afterwards about what we saw what we learned and what we can then apply well thank you for adding that awesome uh, can I just add one thing too? I mean, this is we, we're kind of building this whole system, right, of what adult learning looks like as we're responding to you. But I have been struck by how powerful looking at exemplars can be for teams of educators to learn more about their own practice, like an exemplar lesson in writing or a video of someone they don't know in front of a classroom that then allows them to have kind of a different kind of conversation about their own instruction. You take away that direct comparison of colleague to colleague, and you sort of form this alliance in your team and the way you analyze that exemplar. And I've been really struck by how how that exemplar can be a catalyst for a different kind of adult learning conversation. I mean, that even reminds me of like in the early days of, of High Tech High, we had a lot of folks coming through, like would bring teams of educators to our schools. And the reaction was often like, oh my gosh, I didn't know what this looked like, or I didn't think this was possible. But now I do, because we're seeing it together and we're here as a team and we're able to unpack it and debrief and ask questions. And not that we're a model, we're like figuring things out all the time, but I think it was different enough from what folks were doing that it really stood out and like pushed on some thinking in the same way that exemplars and models can do. So thanks for adding that. Yeah. It makes us want to continually improve, right? That's the idea. Okay, perfect transition to the next question, which was, you both have been doing a lot in terms of supporting adult learning for a while. And I'm curious just how you came to continuous improvement and what felt new or different from how you had previously thought about adult learning in schools and what that looked like. Yeah, so my trajectory to intentionally attending to continuous improvement within the frame, right, of, of educator learning happened when I came to Learning Forward. And so when I came to Learning Forward, I was invited to be the facilitator of a network of about 20 school systems. And all of these school systems had previously worked on innovative professional learning initiatives. It had been, you know, grant funded and, you know, the name of that network acronym-wise was RPDC, the Redesign Professional Development Community. And these systems really wanted to do a much better job of ensuring that the system of professional learning was coherent and meeting the needs of the educators in the system. And at the same time, the other problem of practice that was being focused on was how do we actually consistently and continually measure the impact of the professional learning so that we can make the adaptations and changes that we need to in the system based on whether or not, you know, teachers are changing their practice and ultimately, right, shifting outcomes for students. And so we were focusing on a cycle, right, then that the whole system could be looking at and working through. And it just really shifted my mindset around the fact that you don't just put a system in place and then go through your tasks and check them off. And three years later, you know, you look back and you strategize and you plan for a new system. Um, but instead, in intentional iterations, 
right? You look at how we're doing against the ideas that we said, well, let's test this out. And they're not just random ideas, right? They're rooted in research, grounded also in our experiences and that of others. And we have a method by which we're measuring the changes that we're, that we're seeing, right? In these intentionally scheduled iterations. And the more I've worked on continuous improvement work, the more I've been surprised at how natural it can become for us because in our regular lives, not necessarily our work lives, we're often making these simple changes. And even though we might be doing that similarly in school systems, we don't do a good job of documenting the change that we made, why we made it, how we measured what happened because of that change, and then the response that we're making. And so I loved when I finally learned that there's a really simple way (laughs) to document that change cycle um, so that we might actually make better changes and make them in a way that we are consistently going to be able to evidence the improvements that we're making. And I'll hold off on talking about challenges, but that's to answer the first part of it, how I got into it and some of the things that, you know, get me excited as well as maybe surprise me a little bit along the way. So once I realized that classroom teaching was not my strength, I then went to do research about teaching and teachers. And one of my first projects involved a lot of interviewing and observation of teachers and listening to them about what kinds of supports they needed and trying to capture everything I was learning from these focus groups and interviews to share with district policymakers. And I was thinking there are all these great ideas in the research and there are all these really well-written plans at the district level and there are teachers saying what they want and none of it is connecting. And then when I came to Learning Forward, I started working really to build a network called the What Matters Now Network. So I first came to continuous improvement in this What Matters Now network, where we got teams from three different states together to identify their priority problem of practice, and then a design team of district and school administrators and educators and coaches and facilitators got together to say, what would this look like at the classroom level? What's the smallest possible start we can make to start building towards these desired improvements? And, you know, at the beginning, it was still a little theoretical, but then once the teams started testing these improvements and documenting what they were learning and adjusting and trying something new and seeing the results in their own learning and in their students' learning, it just caught fire from there. And, um, you know, we saw improvements in the way districts in Maryland were designing their science instruction. And at the same time, that information those science teams were collecting informed policy changes at the district and even the state level. And then once I saw it, I was, I was just hooked and it 
I tried it with my kids. I tried it with my friends. I tried it with every other um, bit of work I've done since then. Elizabeth, can you say like three more sentences about like the science example and like what were the sorts of things that people were trying and how did that actually impact policy? Like what were some of the policies that emerged as a result of that work? So teams from two districts in Maryland were trying to align classroom instruction more closely to the next generation science standards. And when we started to look at where the disconnects were, we realized that a lot of the school professional learning did not include enough information about what was in the next generation science standards. We also saw a need for more explanation about how you talk about phenomena in science, for instance, that this was something that educators knew they needed to do, but didn't quite know what it looked like and what it would mean for their own classroom. So teams would read exemplar lessons, compare them to their own instruction, and then talk about what shifts they might make in instruction to tie their lesson more closely to what the standard called for and to more accurately assess whether students were understanding the content they needed to understand in order to achieve the standard. And then each team would share their results with other teams. So it sort of spread across the district. And then part of the design of the network was to have district STEM administrators and state agency um, leaders as part of the as part of the discussions about the results of the cycles of improvement, and it became apparent that the state agency needed to to provide some more accessible resources about what was required in the next generation science standards. So they slightly changed their protocols for the way they observed schools. And then they also created a checklist for districts to help them better understand sort of the key components of the next generation science standards. So it was really a a state agency produced set of supports in response to what the teachers were demonstrating they needed in their classroom. Great. Well, so this, thinking back to like all this work that you both have done with continuous improvement, what are some of the challenges that you've encountered along the way? And how have you addressed those? When you've been working with a team or a group, right, for 12 to 15 months, and then there's a change, right? And the change is in leadership. Sometimes I've, I've recognized that we haven't done the best job of helping the process be integrated and embedded into the system because it's attached to certain people. And any advice, you know, experience, it, because of your experience, Stacey, that you have on that, I would love it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll just I'll just say that we share the same grapple and I think the distinction you just made is really helpful around thinking in terms of processes not people 
because mm-hmm. you're right. I think there's this default to like, well, we have Anna, we have Jose, like they've got it. Um, and the process will live with a few people. And then when those few people leave or don't get the support they need to spread that yeah. it, the work can really struggle. And, um, and so we, we grapple with that as well. And I think the key is what you're saying, like getting it, getting enough leadership investment involved that it starts to be seen as a process and like how we do things versus Anna and, and Jose. Um, mm-hmm. So that really resonates with me. I don't know that I have any great advice to share, but we can, we can noodle on it together over a drink sometime. <laughs> yeah, I will say certainly just you confirming that, right. It's not an isolated scenario, right. In the, in the work that I've been involved in, but it, it, can be a significant hurdle. Um, yeah. So yeah, just avoid it as a pitfall, right? For sure. And let's keep it a low hurdle, right? So we can at least hop over it. Yeah. And I'll just name that the pandemic has really like amplified all of that. Like we're seeing so much turnover in schools, mm-hmm. so much overwhelm in schools. So um, that all plays plays into this too. It makes it really hard to embed things into a new system, even though it could also be viewed as a huge opportunity to rethink the system. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So on that note, right, I've also heard um, different folks say, you know, as you're beginning an engagement together, right, um, because we've all agreed, yes, this is the kind of work we want to start. And that, you know, shortly thereafter, someone's like, oh, well, we already do that. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so breaking the bubble of, well, we do that. We just call it, you know, X, Y, or Z. And I guess the beauty is because we work to make sure that there's trusting relationships that we can come alongside one another and kind of, uh, what is, I think Jim Knight is the one that says um, nudging without bruising. And if it's not Jim Knight, I don't know who says it, but <laughs> lots of folks in the coaching world, let's just go with that. Say you want to yeah. nudge people without bruising them to show them that, well, you're doing something that looks like this, but it doesn't sound like it. It doesn't taste like it. It really doesn't smell like it at all. So (laughs) let's work on that together. Right. And uh, then we'll, we'll be in, you know, we'll be in sync. I was going to say, um, Stacy, to kind of your point of adding this process versus embedding this process can be a huge challenge, especially at the beginning because it's it's challenging to convince people who have such full plates that something new might better facilitate the work they're already trying to do. We also had the challenge of over explaining the theory of continuous improvement instead of just getting into the process and trusting that the proof was in the pudding. The other challenge I think is going back to what we were talking about a little while ago about how important data and documentation is. There's sometimes a challenge in the way people think about what data is. So sometimes when you say we want you to collect classroom level data, or that's what we're going to use to sort of analyze how well this change idea impacted your classroom, people assume it's some kind of 
big new undertaking as opposed to data being your exit tickets or your the student work. So that that can be another challenge, I think, to just mainly to getting started because once you understand that your own your own classroom uh, practices and your student work is are the data. Uh, you're off to the races, but that initial conversation about what data is and what's valuable can be a challenge. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because um, I think one of the dispositions we're always trying to cultivate through continuous improvement is this desire to ask ourselves, like, how do we know? And we talk about the three improvement questions, you know, what do we want to accomplish for whom and why? Like, what are we going to try? And then how do we know? And I feel like educators can get very clear on those first two and like ready to go, but we don't often loop back to that, how do we know? And so I was wondering, can you just share maybe a little bit more about, or a particular example of how do you support others and maybe even each other in the work to like return to this question of like, how do we know? What does that look like for you all? You know, we literally have that question, how do you know? And educators address that question individually and then come together and focus on their responses and sort of compare and contrast based on their own classroom experiences. I appreciate a little bit that you brought up, right, the intentionality of time to devote to the question of, of how do we know and what it made me think about is how often when we come together, especially in like larger group convenings of like the whole the whole network or even just maybe role alikes that we remind them of the different types of measurement that they might be assessing, right? And so often we default to like, you know, measurement for accountability. And that's not helpful in, in this continuous improvement situation, but rather we want to look at those smaller measures that we can quickly um, glean information from right, on the day-to-day or over a, sh- a short number of weeks. And I think when we engage, going back, right, to that powerful learning structure, when we engage with the teachers and the leaders early on in the network in that simulated kind of um, scenario, and we model for them what that easily accessible, you probably capture this kind of stuff all the time data is, then we hearken them back to that experience in the moments of how do you know? In the current network, a teacher team was really thinking about their math instruction and the types of questions that they are offering to students in order to advance students' thinking, right? And so there's advancing questions and there are questions that really just shortcut, right? Getting to an answer. And this group of teachers really wanted to do more in the advancing questions. So they had a question tracker. And, and just that simple measure, right? What's the language in, in improvement is, right? A practical measure that they could just simply themselves or a colleague, right? On behalf of them could tally when and how often they're asking advancing questions as compared to other types. You could just see this team of teachers recognize their own growth, right? Because the data was right in front of them and it was their data about them in their classroom. I love that example too, because it makes me think about like one of the most powerful practical measures I think there is, is just like conversation mapping 
and like noticing who's talking, where the conversation is going in a classroom and just being able to like look at maps over time as you're trying new things and see the density increase and like more students speaking up. It's like, it's such an easy thing to do in the moment. And it's so compelling to look at the change and map it to what you're trying. So in some of our previous conversations, I have really appreciated the emphasis that you both have put on understanding the system and the need to create greater coherence and alignment across a system. And I'm curious just, and maybe this goes back to our earlier question about the challenges, but what have you learned about the conditions that need to be in place for continuous improvement to really flourish? The leaders being able to engage with other leaders to talk about their professional learning challenges, right? Embodied like in a network where they had a shared problem of practice, they were working on that together, that they were able to build those relationships with one another to work not only within their own district teams, but working across district teams. The learning leaders' professional learning efficacy, it changed because they participated in that community of practice. They increased their knowledge. They increased their um, their knowledge of their role and their responsibility, right, in ensuring effective and efficient and equitable professional learning. They it developed new capacities to lead and advocate for professional learning. The leaders in the system need to stand up for the fact that professional learning matters. And when I say the leaders in the system, that's not just folks who have a title, right? Classroom teachers are leaders in an education system. And so their agency to say, this is the kind of learning I need is a condition that tremendously matters. Um, We've been talking about this culture of collaborative inquiry. That's also fundamental to the conditions for an effective and high impact system of professional learning. And it was so much fun for me, right? As a lifelong educator, professional learning nerd, um, and now, you know, an emerging scholar, to be able to document through research that networking and the network leaders working on conditions in their own systems certainly makes a difference. Okay, last question. If you could go back to whisper in your own ears when you were launching your first improvement network, knowing what you know now, what would you tell yourselves? I I have a, I have a, an easy one. I mean, I, I mentioned this before, but we spent a lot of time talking about the theory and the principles of improvement science. And we got all the teachers together and all the coaches together and all the district department chairs together and talked them to death about why this would be a great idea and why and how we weren't going to waste their time because this is going to support the work you're already doing as we were potentially wasting their time over explaining. And so if I could go back in time, I would just be faster about that and, and be, you know, use what we know about good professional learning and show them what would happen and how fast it can happen and how, how valuable it could be to their, the changes they want to see in their school. That's an excellent point, Elizabeth. Um, I think I would whisper to myself to remember to do what you're teaching, right? So 
explicitly, explicitly document in your own practice, right, as a professional or as a member, right, of a team at Learning Forward, the very thing that you are asking other folks to engage in so that I could myself at times feel the frustration of the form, right, that I might be asking them to fill out. I mean, I made it. It's great. I can't understand why, you know, it seems to take, you know, such a period of time to complete it. Um, But if I'd probably spent time myself filling it out for my own uh, improvement work before I really got deeply into the process, I might have more empathy. Well, I'm no me. I would have more. I would actually have empathy for them, right? Um, because I'd experienced my own pitfall. So yeah, that's probably my best whisper is do it yourself, right? Before you ask others to do it. High Tech High Unboxed is hosted and edited by me, Alec Patton. Our theme music is by Brother Herschel. Huge thanks to Stacy Callier, Michelle Bowman, and Elizabeth Foster for this conversation. Thanks for listening.